Password with Matt Cooper. Today FM, it all happens here. And you're welcome back to The Last Word. It's Wednesday evening, so it's time for the Culture Club. Our newest member is the author Sarah Gill Martin, whose second novel, Service, has just been released. Sarah, thank you very much for coming into the Culture Club. Thanks for having me. It's fantastic to have you here because your second novel is just being released now. Your first one came out during COVID-19, mm-hmm. so you didn't have much of a chance to publicise <laughs> it in studios, I'd imagine. Uh, no, there was no launch like many other writers who had uh, books out during covid uh, so this, in a weird way, feels a little bit like uh, the book is out tomorrow, so we're having a launch and it feels like we're kind of <clears throat> uh, hopefully doing it right this time. <laughs> Tell us about service. Uh, so service is set in a buzzy, high-end Dublin restaurant um, at the height of the Celtic Tiger. And it's a story about of, uh, an abuse of power. And it takes place over two, two timelines. So it takes place in the Celtic Tiger time and 10 years later, just before the Me Too movement is getting underway. And it's told from three perspectives. So the perspective of a, <clears throat> a waitress who's 21 and working in the fancy restaurant during college over summer. Uh, the Michelin-starred chef, Daniel, and then Daniel's wife, Julie. I can't think of a better time to set a book during the Celtic Tiger because an era of so much excess, so much money, but also so much power and people trying to exert power over others. Absolutely. And I actually, I worked as a business journalist. I was just out of college during that time. And, you know, it was a time of great excess, opportunity, possibility, easy money, quick deals. Um, but it was also maybe uh, quite a dangerous place to do business in retrospect or in hindsight. So it seemed to me the perfect backdrop for a story about the abuse of power. And you bring in the Me Too movement, which is now, I think it's a strange imagine, but we're talking events that happened five or six years ago, mm-hmm. the downfall of Harvey Weinstein, many other power brokers around the world. But people think, oh, well, that's done and dusted <laughs> now. That, we don't have to worry about that anymore. Uh, you do hear that a little bit. I think, you know, the expression, some people say, you know, that there's Me Too fatigue. But really, um, you know, we're talking about uh, stuff that's been going on for women um, for centuries, for, you know, for a very long time. So I, I don't think it's fair to really say that after five years, you know, we're, we're done with that. And I mean, just going through the papers today, I, I had a look at them. I'm a journalist, I always do. Front page of the Irish Times today was a story about how the system is failing um, victims of domestic abuse and sexual abuse. Front page of the Daily Mail was about um, the Women of Honour group, how they're not maybe going to take part in the statutory inquiry into um, what's been going on in, in the Irish Defence Forces if they, they get a whiff that there might be any whitewashing to do with it. So these kind of things are still hugely topical. Uh, they're still hugely going on. Um, so I don't really buy the, oh, it's all over now. You're launching the book, as you said, tomorrow. I'm thinking about the books that have happened in the last couple of years in Ireland. We've had, had a great tradition in the last few years of some great female authors. You've obviously, as a your critic as well, yeah. have you looked around the world and think, what what type of stories can I add to it? And then looked at, you know, a great tale set in and around the Celtic Tiger. Uh, not really. Um, that's not how writing works for me at all. I do read an awful lot um, for my job as a, a, re- a review books for the Irish Times. Um, but for me, a story has to be a little bit more organic. Um, you know, I generally start with the voice. I started with the voice of the waitress in this instance. It was actually, um, it was for a monologue um, for uh, for an actress who had been in, sh- in a short play of mine. And then when I was reading about Me Too, um, it struck me that one of the voices you rarely hear from is the voice of the partner or the partner of the person who's been accused or the wife. And whenever I feel there's kind of a, a lack or a dearth of something, I find that kind of interesting as a writer. So very much a voice-led novel. 
Yeah, and as I said, it's lunch tomorrow. So we'll get on to your literary choices a little bit later on because we could have loads from you. But we do want to start our Culture Club with bringing you all the way back to your childhood and asking, what was the first single you ever bought? Do you remember? So we weren't really a household of singles. Um, I There's a lot of accountants in my family. I'm kind of the renegade, <laughs> you know, broke out into the arts. Um, so it really, you know, our pocket money was tight, would have been a lot of frugal stuff. So, you know, you'd, you'd put it more towards an album rather than a single, more bang for your buck. Um, I can remember the first cassette tape I got. And that was uh, the soundtrack of Dirty Dancing. And I think it was kind of in protest at not being allowed to watch the film. <laughs> uh, so my friend, my, um, my best friend and next door neighbour, who was also called Sarah, was allowed to watch the movie at the time. And uh, I wasn't. So I think this was just my like little way around it. At least I kind of had some way into, uh, in, into the movie. So let's go into that Dirty Dancing soundtrack and let's have a listen to Patrick Swayze. She's like the wind. Swayze, She's Like the Wind from the Dirty Dancing soundtrack, which sadly you got the music, but you didn't get to see the film so much later. No, but actually my friend had watched it so many times and in that way of teenage girls that are only able to do, gave me the plot in such minute <laughs> detail, I felt as if I had seen it myself. Do you still listen to the soundtrack? Uh, n- probably not for a very long time, unless it occasionally comes up on some mix on Spotify. I've no idea where the original is. <laughs> well, as you said, you weren't allowed to have singles in the household, but you were an album person, so mm-hmm. take us through some of the great bands that you listen through throughout your teen years? Uh, yeah, so I guess for when I was thinking about it in terms of albums, um, my teen years, my first album that I bought was Alanis Morissette, Jack Little Pill, uh, which I think was quite similar for, you know, a lot of girls in uh, my age and in my class kind of came of age in the in the 90s. Uh, so that was, Alanis Morissette was kind of a revelation. She was talking about things in a way that, you know, you just didn't really hear about in Ireland. Very eloquently, lots of filth. Um, we used to listen to it um, occasionally if we were travelling around myself and my brother and my parents uh, they'd let us you know choose the music and whenever we put Jack a Little Pill on you know there were certain songs that had certain words or phrases that you knew just to talk really loudly over <laughs> so they wouldn't hear that bit and then you could kind of go back and listen to the rest of it sure I'm, I'm sure they knew <laughs> <laughs> You're also a big Radiohead fan or a little bit of a Radiohead fan Yeah uh, no I am a big Radiohead fan um, I kind of came to it a little bit later I spent the summer of my leaving cert in Vienna with a couple of guys and they listened to music that I had never really listened to before Radiohead was one, Leonard Cohen was another and then I think when I came to college um, somebody far cooler than me introduced me to OK Computer and <laughs> it's been an album I've loved for years You've moved on in more recent years as well mm-hmm. I think that the National is now something you're really getting into. Yeah, so um, kind of embarrassingly 
I discover things really, <laughs> really, really too late. So I recently. That's fine. Recently, Word of mouth is fine. <laughs> even after a few years. I mean, I recently, like when I say recently, like a couple of months ago, I, in quotation marks, discovered the National <laughs> about 15 years after everybody else. Um, and I, in a kind of an obscure way, I'm a little bit stubborn that like if somebody tells me, oh, this is a great band, listen to this. I, I find it difficult to do that. So if there's a band you want to recommend to me, just, you know, just don't tell me anything about it. Let me find to find myself and I'll, I'll come to it like 15 or 16 years later. But the national, I started with Boxer and then Alligator and I have moved on to High Violet, uh, which I think is my favourite. And I've just listened to it over and over again. I like to do that. I like to wear an album out. Well, let's have a listen to Terrible Love by the national from the High Violet album. National Sarah, you are defying the Apple Music and Spotify algorithms that you come to things so late. <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they haven't got me yet. It's one of those things where you you look at some of the bands that you've picked there now and they are the soundtrack to so many Irish summers and they are the soundtrack to mm-hmm. so many gigs that people have been at as well. And you, you've, you've travelled the world for gigs. I think it's fair to say, I don't think I've ever been to South America for a gig. Uh, well, in fairness, I was travelling with a group of girls around Central and South America at the time and the gig happened to be on. Um, there was a festival in Buenos Aires called Boo. It was around November time in 2006, I think. And uh, we went out on the Saturday and there was DJ Shadow, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the headline act was Daft Punk. So it was part of their live tour. Um, and they later released that album and it's a cracking album. You I saw Daft Punk in Buenos Aires. Yeah, it was brilliant. Um, there there was a couple of things about that um, about that day. The first thing was it was just in comparison to Irish festivals, we could not get over how cheap it was. Like the ticket, I can't remember the price now, but it was so cheap. It was maybe a quarter of what you would pay for a ticket in Ireland. Don't tell the promoters that <laughs> as they're trying to sell out the summer concerts. So we were delighted. Um, also the price of drink, very cheap. And then the, 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 the other thing Thing that was really noticeable was that um, you know there was thousands and thousands of people at it like there would have been with a, a festival in Ireland but we were able to like go right to the front because the crowd were all really tame so you could just literally walk right to the front of the stage for Daft Punk and when we did get up there there was like one other kind of smaller group of people of lads going mad and it turned out they were from Dublin so they <laughs> they, had, they had also made it up to the top. You can't go anywhere without meeting Irish people at a gig. That's it especially if you get to the front. Let's have a listen to that Daft Punk gig in Buenos Aires in 2006. And this is Daft Punk performing one more time.
I could only imagine what it was like seeing Daft Punk in Buenos Aires. It must have been something special. Yeah, it was super. Um, there was a couple of gigs like that when I was in my late teens and early 20s. Um, another one that comes to mind uh, was the summer of my first year in college. I lived in Munich for the summer and uh, White Ladder had made David Gray huge here and in the UK. But the Germans hadn't really, hadn't really broken Europe or, or Germany at least. So um, a group of us Irish students went to see him for less than a tenor in a really small room with like <laughs> loads of Irish people loving him. And then a couple dozen bemused Germans going, what is going on here? So that was another memorable. Yeah. One. And at the time, I think 10 euros would have been quite a cheap price to pay for David Gray. Oh, it was so cheap. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I, I did well with my gigs. Have you, have you, the type, are you the type of person now that does like to get away if you're traveling somewhere? Is there anything on I can see? Is there a gig on that I'd really like to go to? Yeah. I mean, I ha- I was actually trying to think of the last gig and I think since COVID, I haven't been to a gig. So I'd really like to get going or to, to get back to that kind of thing. Typically, more if I go away these days is, is to a play or something like that. So, um, maybe it's just reflective of the fact that I'm getting a bit older. <laughs> I don't know. There is no age at which you can't go to a gig abroad. That's true. Nobody knows who you That's are. True. Let's get on to your movie choice now because this is something, uh, it's a film I love myself. Tell us about it. Uh, so this is Sideways. Um, and I actually recently re- rewatched it maybe just a couple of weekends ago and it's still as good. It just stands up. So it's basically. It's a couple of things combined. It's a buddy movie. It's a road trip movie. Uh, it's it, it's about two guys who are friends since college, uh, Jack and Miles, and they're going on a week-long stag, effectively, to uh, wine country in California. And like in a really weird way that Americans seem to do it, like it's like the day they get back, the next day is the wedding. Like I just can't get my head around you know how they do that over there yeah uh, they but, wouldn't do an Irish stag like that no no I mean nobody would be at the wedding uh, or certainly the groom wouldn't be uh, but yeah so they you know Miles is um, he's an aspiring writer um, who is really struggling to get his book published and his marriage is just broken down and Jack really wants to just have one wild wild week before he kind of like settles down eventually so they both the way that the way that it's set up is really clear like within a couple of scenes a couple of lines of dialogue and shots you know what the dynamic is going to be and they rub off each other really well um so miles is a teacher he's kind of an intellectual and jack is like um an actor who used to be in famous in a soap and now he's kind of doing adverts that yeah kind of it's, it's got the fantastic paul giamatti as miles and tom's oh, head and shirt is jack it's absolutely it's wonderful actually let's have a listen to let's have a listen to this from sideways please just be aware of some of this content has a bit of an adult theme about it. I'm so insignificant, I can't even kill myself. Miles, what the hell is that supposed to mean? Come on, man, you know, Hemingway, Sexton, Plath, Wolf. You can't kill yourself before you've even been published. What about the guy that wrote Confederacy of Dunces? He committed suicide before he was published. Look how famous he is. Thanks. Just don't give up. You're going to make it. Half my life is over, and I have nothing to show for it. Nothing. I'm a thumbprint on the window of a skyscraper. I'm a smudge of excrement on a tissue, surging out to sea with a million tons of raw sewage. See? Right there. Just what you just said, that is beautiful. A smudge of excrement surging out to sea. Yeah. I can never write that. Neither could I, actually. I think it's Bukowski. 
It is. For, if you haven't seen that movie, it is absolutely wonderful. As I said, Paul Giamatti, such a great actor, and Thomas Haddon Church there as well in it. He is. There's a scene close to the end, and I won't give it away, but basically Paul Giamatti has to retrieve a wallet in kind of really strange circumstances, and the camera just pans in on his face, and he's kind of, he's half human, half animal, whatever way his face goes, and it's just, it cracks me up every single time. It really is. If you haven't seen it, please do go and find it and watch it. Sergio Martin is staying with us for the rest of the Culture Club. We'll be talking your book choices and your buried treasure in just a couple of minutes. Welcome back to The Last Word. Sarah Gilmartin, the author, is with us this week, our newest inductee into the Culture Club. We've been going through your music choices, your gigs. You've been to South America to see gigs. We went through your film choice there as well. But I want to get on to some of your other picks this week for us. And let's start with your favourite play. Um, so again, kind of with COVID, I, I would have I would have gone more to the theatre a lot before COVID, but since I've since, since things have kind of reopened, I'm, I'm trying to get back into it. So one recent production that I saw that really stood out for me because of the lead role was Portia Coughlin in The Abbey, the uh, Marina Carr play. And the lead Portia was played by Denise Goff, who is an actor that, I mean, I could watch her read the phone book. She's just phenomenal. Um, I actually saw her at another event last autumn uh, where she was reading the opening of The Wastelands and, uh, you know, it was just the opening. That was the bit she was going to do, but I just wanted her to stay on stage and read the whole thing. Uh, She's phenomenal. And the play itself is quite dark, um, deals with domestic families, very Marina Carr in in a very kind of elevated um, mix of registers way. Um, And actually the... It premiered, um, it, so it, it's a reprisal, but the premiere was in the mid-90s. And the woman that I went to see the play with uh, recently, she had seen the original production in the 90s and she just said the place was just so lit up um, because obviously the subject matter that she was dealing with back then was stuff that just wasn't talked about at all. Let's have a listen to the trailer from the revival of Portia Coughlin at the Abbey. In all the world is Portia and Gabriel forever in a tight hot womb where there's no breathing no thinking no seeing only darkness and heart drums and touch And that is the trailer from the revival of Portia Coughlin at the Abbey. As you said, you don't get out or you, you'd like to get to more to the theatre mm-hmm. these days. And I, I know COVID meant that a lot of people just kind of went, oh, do I want to get back out to things? You know, do, do you miss going to events like that? Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I think it's starting to change, uh, you know, even with it, it used to be quite weird going to the theatre with masks as well. And, you know, they're gone now. So there is more of a feeling of getting back out there. Um, I mean, there's something really... Uh, you, you can't replicate it at home. You can't replicate the experience of a play at home, you know, in a way that you can maybe a little bit with a movie, you know, sitting in the dark with loads of people you don't know just right beside you, um, also watching um, something live on stages. Yeah, and as a writer, do you listen, when you're at a live theatre, you can hear the dialogue much mm-hmm. differently than, than it is in a movie or on mm-hmm. TV. Yeah, and actually I'm trying to, at the moment I've moved a, I'm taking a little break until I start my third novel. So I'm trying to grow the 10 minute play that I, I wrote um, and was... Uh, it was part of a short and sweet festival uh, in 2019. So I'm trying to grow it into a full length play. So I am really interested in dialogue. Um, I think playwriting is one of, or for me anyway, I find it the hardest um, thing to do because so much of it is subtext. So actually, you know, if you read a, if you read the transcript of, of a play, much of it will seem really boring when you're reading it in a way that a novel won't because actually it's what's happening on stage, what the actors are doing with it, um, you know, what the set is, you know, it, it, it's so many other factors rather than just the line 
lines on the page. Uh, so you've I've, been a writer of many different things. As you said, you've done short stories, which have been award-winning. You've written, this is now your second novel, but also as a journalist and as a reviewer, they are different styles. Yeah, completely different styles. So I am used to kind of, um, you know, jumping between uh, be, between different styles, but playwriting is something that I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by. Is it something, as you said, you're, you're looking at adapting one of your short stories now? Is it something you think down the line, perhaps I'd love to do a full-length play? Uh, well, yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I'm looking to do with this one. So it was. It was a two-hander between a man and a woman, and that took place over ten minutes. So I'm keeping it with those just two same individuals, and I'm trying to grow it to about maybe an hour or seventy minutes. Let's move on to your book choices because I imagine this is always very hard for a writer and as somebody that reviews fiction as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's kind of tough. Um, you know, there's just so many. I think I've reviewed in the region of somewhere between four hundred and five hundred books in the last ten years. So there's a lot. Um, but writers that I return to all the time, um, Claire Keegan, Anne Enright and Tyler would be three. Uh, with Claire Keegan, I think probably my favourite of her stories is Foster. Uh, I don't tend to cry a whole lot when I'm reading, but the ending of Foster just gets me every single time, even though I know it's coming. Um, yeah, you know, it just there's just a real moment of catharsis in it. Um, Anne Enright's The Green Road is another book I go back to quite a lot. Um, I find something new in it every time I read it. Um, there are, you know, it, it's a story about four siblings and their mother, and each of the characters has their own perspective and their own section. There's a phenomenal sec- second section in the book. Um, it's about uh, uh, the the son in the family who emigrates in the eighties. He's gay and he he hasn't come out yet, and it's set in New York, and it's kind of told from the perspective of all the guys he meets over there in the first person plural. And after you read it, you just kind of need you need to lie down. Actually, you just need to you need a bit of a rest. It's such a good piece of writing. I find myself as somebody, I read quite a lot myself, but I, I read a lot of nonfiction, but I always find, mm-hmm. you know, there's a certain genre I go towards in fiction and it's the type of, might be a UK writer, like your Sebastian Folks and Ian McEwan like that. Do you mm-hmm. find yourself gravitating towards a certain type of author that you think this is somebody who I get and it inspires me to do what I want? Um, Anne Tyler would be one writer. Um, I think it was her novel, Dinner at the Homesick Restaurant, I read when I was around 29 or 30. Um, and it's about, again, one family over decades from multiple people's perspectives within the family. I think it was the first time I thought that I could seriously maybe write fiction myself. Up until that point, it was, you know, more arts journalism and things like that. Um, so Anne Tyler is somebody I definitely go back to. Uh, someone new that I have come across recently, and again, in quotation marks, she's not new at all. I've just come <laughs> across her, so, uh, is Gwendolyn Riley, uh, the English author. She's in her 40s and she has, I think, about five or six or maybe four or five quite short novels. So I've read them all because, you know, you can you can do that with her. And her way of writing about difficult family relationships is just terrific. As somebody who has to review books, is there a time when you, when you come to actually sit down and write? oh I can't do this anymore I've had enough <laughs> uh, they're very different animals you know you're, one part of your brain is on for writing or at least for me anyway and another part of your brain is switched on for reviewing um, I tend to with my writing I try and do it first um, so I'll write early in the morning um, because I find if I start reviewing or you know going on the internet or anything like that, it tends to affect the quality of what comes out. Um, and even if I don't go on the internet, if I write, if say I set aside time to write in the afternoon, 
uh, typically the quality isn't as good as if I just do it in the morning. So I think I'm just, you know, it suits me to, to do it that way. Well, as you said, you're, the, the choice you're going to pick from us now, it is uh, Claire Keegan's Foster, which is the book that, of course, inspired on Colleen Coon, which is, of course, the wonderfully successful Irish language film that mm-hmm. sadly didn't win the Oscar <laughs> when we should have won the Oscar. Thank you very much to Hollywood for that. But let's hear Vanna Lynch reading from it. When the woman comes out, she pays no heed to the men. She's even taller than my mother, with the same black hair, but hers is cut tight like a helmet. She's wearing a printed blouse and brown flared trousers. The car door is opened, and I'm taken out and kissed. The last time I saw you, she says, you were in the pram. She licks her thumb and wipes something off my face. When she looks at my clothes, I see my thin cotton dress, my dusty sandals through her eyes. There's a moment when neither one of us knows what to say. Come on in, Alanov. She leads me into the house. We walk through into the heat of the kitchen, where I'm told to sit down, to make myself at home. She lifts the rhubarb tart out of the oven and puts it on the bench to cool. Syrup on the point of bubbling over. Thin leaves of pastry baked into the crust. A cool draught from the door blows in, but here it is hot and still and clean. There's no sign anywhere of a child. So how is your mammy keeping? She won a tenner on the prize bonds. She did not. She did, I say. We all had jelly and ice cream and she bought a new tube and a mending kit for the bicycle. Well, wasn't that a treat? It was, I say. It's really wonderful little short, snappy dialogue, but also so familiar to an Irish audience. Yeah, and it just just listening to that segment as well. So that's when um, the the girl, the main character in the story, whose story the perspective is from, uh, it's when she arrives at um, relations that she doesn't really know when she's going to be staying there for for the summer. And you can just see how Claire Keegan does it that she she really brings you through the person or the, the little girl's perspective of everything. It's like moment by moment, you know what she sees, uh, how she acts. Um, and all the you know, all the details of that kind of Irish world, even the rhubarb, uh, you know, there's so many good details in it. You were saying before the break there when I was asking you about service that you're moving on to novel number three soon enough. Uh, yeah, although still on the play at the moment, it's taking a little bit of a break <laughs> and I'm also working on a short story or redrafting a short story. But at some point uh, soon, I think uh, I will be hopefully beginning novel number three. How do you how do you go about switching between the brain from, well, as you said, you know, it, writing for stage is a little bit different from writing a novel. Does mm-hmm. the, is the brain able to move between the two seamlessly or does it require that break between different types of work? One thing I figured out, um, and I didn't get this at the start, uh, was that I can only work on one thing writing-wise at a time. So, uh, you know, at the start I would have been trying to tinker away in a short story and then maybe I'd switch over to the second or third draft of the novel that I was working through and then the next day I'd go back to the short story and actually that just didn't work for me the things were things were getting too complicated um so now I just try and focus on one thing at one time um and hopefully I I think that works out for me well we'll look forward to book number three soon enough but let's move on to your tv choices now this is something I I couldn't quite uh, get my head around this one as your favorite tv show as a kid World Wrestling Federation? Yeah, uh, I mean, myself and my brother got really into it. Um, we were I was around nine or ten, and he would have been around seven, my brother Ronan, uh, when we got cable, which actually wasn't called cable at all, it was called the channels. Um, <laughs> and that was a really exciting moment. And at weekends, on Saturday or Sunday, they show a load of wrestling in the morning. So uh, we got really into it. Uh, our favourite wrestler was The Ultimate Warrior. 
Um, and my brother was petrified of The Undertaker. He'll kill me for saying that now, but he was. <laughs> and they had this really, like, one, one, one event that I really remember from it. They had this, um, it was The Ultimate Warrior versus The Undertaker. And basically, um, The Undertaker, they brought out a coffin in The Ultimate Warrior colours. So it was like silver and it had kind of neon green and, and, and pink in it. And The Undertaker buried Ultimate Warrior alive after <laughs> the wrestling match. So we were absolutely terrified by it. And, you know, our parents were upstairs having a lie and thinking, you're downstairs watching cartoons but actually um, you're scaring the living daylights out of yourself instead. Also if you're tuning in right now it's not the sports bulletin about WWE we are talking about 1980s, 1990s wrestling and WWF but you've moved on to uh, other things a little bit more contemporary as well. Mm-hmm. Are, you, are you as somebody who again as a reader are you somebody who thinks uh, is TV an escape from what can be a little bit like work? Uh, I love TV. Um, myself and my husband watch a whole load of it and I think that probably increased uh, over COVID. Uh, so my favourite TV show of all time, which we rewatched over COVID, um, is This Is England. I think Shane Meadows is such a good writer. Um, and that world that he portrays of like middle England, uh, a group of young skinheads, kind of 80s, working up to the early 90s, um, is just so well done. He, he mixes dark and light so well. Yeah, let's have a listen to a scene from This Is England featuring Thomas Turgus as Sean. And again, just a little bit of a warning on this one. Brace yourself for a little bit of language. What's your on? Oh, I'm glad you asked, Sean. I need a favour. You know Gemma Itchens? Sweetheart. I need you to go round her ass and call her a fat, ugly dog in front of me so I can stick up for her and make her want to go out with me. Do what? Oh, you heard him, orange pubes. You are going to go round her house and call her a fat dog. Well, I'm not fit. I know that if I just go round there, I'm going to call her a fat dog and you're just going to punch my face in. On my honour, mate. I, w- I won't touch you. I promise. I might shout a little bit. Maybe trip you up or something just to defend her honour. Right? She's going to go, wow, he's my hero. Why don't you just try to be nice to her? The whole point is she thinks I'm a bully and stuff. All right, and by doing this, we'll make her see I'm dead sensitive and stuff now as well as being hard. Come on, Sean, mate, I was just starting to lie you. And what if I say now? I'll knock you fucking too far. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's still available on the uh, Channel 4 streaming service, all four, if anybody hasn't seen it, worthwhile getting. You're also a big Netflix fan. Uh, yeah, uh, at the moment we're watching, uh, well, I don't know if I'm a big Netflix fan actually, but at the moment I'm watching something, you know, a lot of the stuff, and I think this is an issue of streaming in general, there's just so much dross out there and you can just find yourself scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. Uh, but one thing we are watching on Netflix is really good, uh, is beef. Um, so we're in the middle of it at the moment. I don't know if you're, if you come across I it. I haven't, but I know Matt has reviewed it on the TV slot before. Yeah, it's really good. It kind of just takes a dynamic that is, um, that, that, that's kind of familiar. Uh, so like two characters getting a road road rage incident with each other um, and it just spirals out from there. Um, so it's done in a way that's really, really new and fresh. And a lot of it's about them not being able to take responsibility and, you know, blaming somebody else. And it just notches up. Every episode just keeps notching up another, another go. Yeah. Let's move on to your buried treasure, which is where we always ask our Culture Club guests to give, the, give our listeners something that perhaps they've never come across before. So tell us about this. Yeah. So I don't know if you'd classify her as buried, but um, I read a good few Kate O'Brien novels 
travels last year um, after being shortlisted for the Kate O'Brien Award at Limerick Literary Festival for my debut dinner party. Um, she went to the, she's, I'm from Limerick and so is Kate O'Brien and she went to the same secondary school as me, Laurel Hill. Um, so I was always aware of her as a teenager, but I'd never really um, gotten into her. But some of her books are just phenomenal. So the most recent one I read was The Last Summer, The Last Summer, and it's set in the eve of Second World War and it features one of the best mothers in Irish literature I've come across, Hannah Kernahan, and she's really something else. Well, let's have a listen to Kate O'Brien speaking to RTE a long time ago about her early life. Well, I was born in Limerick a long time ago. We were a large family. There were um, nine of us all together, five brothers I had and three sisters. And our mother died when the eldest of us was, was quite young, only 15, and the youngest was not yet one. I was just over five when my mother died, so I only remember her in flashes. But they are very vivid flashes. Uh, she was very beautiful to me always in these memories. Very gay, she was always laughing at me. I was rather suspicious of that laughing. I was a cautious, solemn sort of child. And I was inclined to think there was a catch in it somewhere. That what was the joke Mother had about me? But uh, I, I only remember her that way in flashes. I do remember that we were well off at home. Father was a wealthy man. And um, we were brought up in comfort and prosperity. And that is the Limerick writer Kate O'Brien talking to RTE many years ago. And as Sarah Gilmartin said, that is her buried treasure and you should pick up some of her work. Sarah Gilmartin, author of Service, thank you very much for being the latest inductee to our Culture Club. Thanks, Millionine. Really enjoyed it. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.